Hey, everyone. Before we get into today's interview, just wanted to drop a little reminder to stay up to date with all the latest episodes of On The Margin. You can subscribe to the BlockWorks Backrow YouTube. Just go up there, just click the little uh, subscribe button, or you can click the links at the top of this episode. It'll take you over to Apple, Spotify, whatever your preferred platform is. Just subscribe there. If you could, leave a rating and review. Really appreciate it. All right, on with the show. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of On The Margin. Today, I am joined by Tim Grant, the CEO at Deus Ex Capital. Tim, welcome to the program. Very excited to be here. Let's let's get into it. Yeah. I thought you were going to say let's rock and roll, um, especially because you got the background of guitars there. Uh, very cool. Maybe we can pressure you to end this with a little musical riff uh, number first yeah, that'd be a yeah, first what you wish for <laughs> um all right tim we've got a lot to cover today but before we do maybe you could just give listeners a quick overview of uh, your background and then what you do at deus ex capital sure so look i'm i'm coming up for 25 years in financial services um and basically it's my career is split up into two parts there's the very tradfi part where i was at ubs investment bank uh, involved in the build out of the credit markets in the 2000s that ultimately led to the last financial crisis back in 08. Um, and uh, then switched to the buy side at UBS O'Connor, which is UBS's hedge fund unit. So I've kind of seen you know, the inner workings of traditional capital markets uh, for, for, for many, many years. But then when I was at uh, O'Connor, I had my uh, genesis moment for this space, uh, which everybody's got one. Everybody's got that moment where you sort of capture the, you know, you, your imagination gets captured. And in my situation, um, I was out on the west coast uh, uh, of the US and and was doing some some visitation for some like Silicon Valley startups. And the whole idea with the UBS executive team that we were with um, was to just have a sense of what's coming. And somewhere in all of that. One fateful day in March of 2015, um, I met with Coinbase and Ripple on the same day. And so I really went from no real understanding of cryptocurrency and Bitcoin um, and, and no real kind of sense of what blockchain is and why it was important. Um, and by the end of that day, had absolutely landed with me why blockchain was important. I must admit, I was a bit slow on the uptake for crypto because I just think as a as a regular coming from regulated tradfi, you, you kind of end up having to go through that loop of a couple of times. Um, but I got there. And so, yeah, never looked back. Bought, bought some um, Bitcoin that day, March 19th, 2015, um, and really was very quickly out of there. And, and then that led to the second part of my career, which is last nine years or so, almost nine years, um, very squarely in this space and, and now starting to feel like a bit of the furniture in the best possible way. Um, so I spent time at R3, the the, the financial services-backed blockchain consortium, building the quarter uh, platform. Uh, was the CEO of the lab and research center. So that was a great opportunity to talk to all the big financial services players around the world who were all looking at this. And I'm sure this theme will come back. Like they, all the big players were looking at this space that far back. You know, like this, like they just suddenly decided that they're interested. Like they were seriously committing to look at this way back then. And, and we were in the front wave of that institutionalization. Um, and so it was a great place to start. Then I did my own startup um, with some some great co-founders and was invested in by uh, Joe Lubin at Consensus. So now you've got um, a real uh, uh, OG, you know, Ethereum player who's, who's kind of showing you the ropes. And it was great to 
to understand DeFi during 17, 18, 19, during that winter. Um, our startup didn't work out, um, but just as we came to an end, uh, I got offered the job to go and be CEO of Six Digital Exchange. So now, um, this was my pandemic gig, um, you know, you're running uh, a regulated exchange in CST for digital securities, which is yet another sort of angle on everything that's going on in our space. Um, and then uh, was approached by Galaxy and, and ran Europe, Middle East and Africa for Galaxy for a couple of years. So looking at all of their businesses, you know, trading, sales and asset management and mining and banking. So it, it's been a real, um, it's been a really kind of varied experience, which I think now I always say has set me up really quite well um, to be doing my new role, which is running a billion dollar private equity venture capital venture building and, and fund investment platform. We're, we're funded by one family um, and uh, with a lot of operating assets in the PB bucket, um, uh, a, a bunch of VC investments that have already been made and we'll make some more, about to announce some more. Um, generally in the field of kind of the crossover of regulated institutional crypto blockchain, you know, fintech, that's the world that we operate in. It would make sense given the history I just described. Um, but we also are going to build some new companies. So we, we, we own a hundred percent and I am chairman of Alpha Lab 40, which is a, uh, a market maker and liquidity provider and prop shop in crypto. So we've got a material amount of capital in there that we run. Um, and we allocate to funds as well. And we're going to do more of those venture builds too. So it's a lot, a lot that you need to look at. We're, we, we've got a lot of interests actually uh, across this crypto and digital asset space, and also actually in the FX space. So, um, so that that's uh, that's how you end up uh, just before Christmas in 2023 needing another vacation. <laughs> well, that makes sense. You've got your your fingers in a lot of different pots out there, and you know, you and I are going to be together in in March in in London uh, for for Das London. And one of the big themes of that conference has always been, you know, how how do you bridge the gap in between traditional finance and everything going on in the world of digital assets, crypto, etc. Um, and you're in a, just a very unique seat to be able to to opine on that a little more directly. So maybe to give listeners a little bit of a sense of what we're gonna what we're gonna be covering here, which is like kind of just even mentally, like what. How, you know, how, how do crypto markets look very different from traditional markets? And maybe if you're coming at this more from a more from a traditional market sort of see, you know, what should you understand, you know, about digital assets and investing and building businesses that is just totally different. Uh, next, I want to get a sense of kind of your where are we in this particular moment in time? Obviously, Bitcoin, crypto, the entire market cap is up quite a bit this year. I actually just got off a phone call from a. A pretty big VC, you know, that was kind of walking me through his his experience raising right now. So I wanted to just get a sense of what institutional interest looks like, um, and maybe some of the macro factors that are driving crypto. And then finally, wanted to get a, a sense of some of the stuff that you're looking at from your seat as as an investor. But maybe to just just take that from the top, like let's, you know, maybe um, I'm sure you've had plenty of experience in your seat at Galaxy or or elsewhere, kind of talking to a more traditional crowd about what it's like to invest in maybe liquid tokens directly or crypto assets or build businesses in crypto. Um, I, I feel like there's a lot of lessons that apply directly from finance and more traditional capital markets, but also crypto is this sort of weird upside down world at the same time as well. And a lot of lessons are totally different. So, you know, if you're speaking to a more traditional audience, I mean, what, how do you communicate? What, what is different about investing in sort of crypto native markets? And yeah, maybe we can start there. Well, look, you know, it's interesting when you think back to where it, for me it all began because I came back from that trip that I described earlier in the West Coast and 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 came back to uh, Dawn Fitzpatrick, who was running at the time, who now who now runs actually Soros 
Soros's funds. And I said, Dawn, look, this is a space we need to look at. You know, from a six and a half billion multi-strat hedge fund, the 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 only people who were already looking at this were people who were running uh, positions with large payments processes like Master, you know, Mastercard and Visa and things like that, and they were already thinking in in 2015, what could this mean for these businesses? Is there an element of potential disruption? And I think that's that's not a bad place to start the story. Like, like you know, you do have to, as a traditional in, investor, think about the disruptive potential of any new technology. And 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 the good news for me, I remember back then was that. It wasn't necessarily difficult intuitively for people to get their head around what blockchain could do, but people really choked on the crypto part. Like they really couldn't quite get their head around that. And 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 in some respects, still very much the same. You know, you, you know, like eight nine years later, you've got this sort of this this um, this dissonance of sorts. And I think we always have to, you just have to recognize that the, you know, the vast um, a, a majority of, of traditional financial services players are highly conservative and highly regulated. That's just the way it goes. You know, there is, there is plenty of unregulated businesses. You know, FX is famously still unregulated in lots of areas. And it's no surprise that therefore FX players in the retail space really yeah. figured this one out early. And, and, and that's sort of, We've, we've got to go back to basics here. It's like, you know, sometimes I still find myself talking with traditional finance players and you, and you really just kind of like, am I banging my head against a brick wall? Like, it can't be that complicated for me to explain how this could be so dramatic and so impactful in building a faster, better, cheaper system for the future. So, you know, we're always kind of up against that. And uh, I will say the good news, and we'll, we'll talk, I suppose we'll talk a bit more, 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 more about it in a minute. Like, we have now got a critical mass of belief, I think, in traditional finance. Certainly enough that the right people are at the table putting the right kind of commitment to things happening. And and you know, not a week goes by that you don't have one big announcement of some sort from someone somewhere in the world that they've made a big step, made a big commitment, put some money in, bought something, are going to build something. And so, you know, that arc is is it is going in the right direction. Um but I feel like we've still got some way to go. And, 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 you know, if you're coming about it from a traditional finance perspective, you're always going to ask the same questions and people do. You're conditioned to. You can't, can't deny that by coming up into the big sell side houses or the hedge funds or the private equity houses, we're all conditioned to kind of see the world in a very particular way. Um, and therefore, you ask about uh, the regulations, you ask about the technology scalability, um, and, and, you know, eventually you kind of get to this level of right now, I'm going to start figuring out what I can do with it. I think what's changed over the last nine years since I've gotten into it is no one really talks about the scalability and the tech anymore. Like, is it, is it relevant? You know, is it scalable? Does it work? Yeah, it's scalable and it works. So, which is not to say that we don't have a lot more work to do, but like, that's not really the one thing that we're waiting to figure out anymore, right? Like this about the tech. And then on the, on the regulation side, I, I do think it's, I find it actually quite interesting when people suggest that that's still an issue. Um, because the way I see it, every major and important jurisdiction on the planet has made material progress. Even the U.S., 
And the trajectory on aggregate is only in one direction, which is that there's going to be more clarity incrementally with every passing month when you take the sort of the global regulatory environment. So I would say as a business builder, as an investor, I don't worry about that. I might be cherry picking where to start, you know, and I think that still is very much a real factor with large pools of capital trying to decide where to go. And it, uh, uh, you just need to see what's going on in the Middle East. You need to see what's going on in, in Europe, which we'll come back to. Um, and there's, there's clarity. So funnily enough, if we've, if we've resolved that the technology is scalable and, 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 and secure and, and we've resolved that the regulation is on its way without a shadow of a doubt, what's left actually, the one thing, the one biggest burden we have is plain old fashioned education. It's almost like a time warp back to 2015. We were back to those basic things again, like what, what, what is this stuff doing? Why is it important? And I, I find that actually quite sort of fascinating, uh, sort of dynamic in the space. Um, but that that's sort of my high level sort of take on 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 that journey, at least that I've taken, and how things have changed, and maybe in a funny way, how things have not. Okay, a lot to unpack there. So I can't remember if I've talked about it on this podcast, but I uh, I'm one of these weird people. I like to go back in time and listen uh, to old podcasts because it's helpful for me to get a sense of how people are thinking at different moments in time. So you know, I've been programming events in crypto for six years. And uh, I actually, the one that people always want to hear about and the one I'm always least excited to talk about is regulation because you could superimpose conversations that I've literally been hosting for years on the current day and they would change maybe 10%. And uh, just by way of example, there's an, uh, a podcast in crypto that's been very long running called Epicenter. You can go back and I was listening to in 2014, they put together this episode on big trends in the space. Coindesk was just getting started. Actually, the guy announced it like, hey, we're this little publication called Coindesk. Many of you may not have heard of us, but it was, so that was funny. But the trends were, one, people are too focused on price. Two, positive, uh, positive trajectory in regulation. Three, there was a ban in crypto on China that had just gotten reversed. I mean, come on, you could literally superimpose all of those things over today. And one, you know, one other maybe nuance that I would also suggest and why this isn't quite, the, I think the finance people tend to talk a lot about regulation. Um, crypto's gotten a lot of pushback from Silicon Valley and more traditional investors. Mm -hmm. And I think there's another reason why that is, is because it flips the model of how you monetize internet-based yeah. companies on its head. So the model of Web2, how they ultimately figured it out was, just like in crypto, you have these open decentralized protocols, HTTP, et cetera. And the way that that ended up getting monetized was applications that were built on top of those open protocols that you basically made a walled garden and you monetize that way. And crypto says, what if we took those walled gardens, made them very neutral platforms and decentralized them? And all the Web2 people look at that and say, no, 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 you, you hey, this is how you make money, guys. You're doing this all wrong. And so you actually see like vehement pushback from uh, Silicon Valley types quite quite frequently, and uh, in in a sense they're right, right? You are sort of foregoing a profit center, but this is you know at least in my sense this is a new computing platform. And instead of asking like, hey, how can we? You should be focusing on on what crypto can do better. Like one, don't directly compare uh, Filecoin to Box, but instead focus on what Filecoin can do better. And it's by making it open and neutral and more flat, you just increase the 
total addressable market by a pretty wide margin. And I think that's a sort of nuance that gets missed as well. As crypto tries to solve problems very differently than internet companies have in the past. Well, you know, I think you make a, a, a fantastic point. And, and, you know, the, the, the term that I've said over the years, um, it w- was, was initially mentioned by a, a, an academic um, who said to me one day, and it will drive me forever, like value is generated at the intersection of previously walled gardens. <laughs> yeah. And I think the point you're making is exactly right. So we talk about financial services and financial services itself is quite full of quite siloed stuff. Like it's all very fixed incomes over here and equities over there and never the twain shall meet. And we still talk about in very traditional financial services, trying to bring down those barriers over time. Uh, and it's painful and it's going to be slow. And uh, and financial services, sort of the, the dirty secret of financial services is it really sucks at innovating. Like it's yeah. just, you would very rarely point out financial services as players as being so innovative in, in, in sort of stepping out of, of the methods that they currently use and the paradigm that they currently use. Like they're just not very good at it. Innovation seems new to finance, but innovation is as old as time itself, you know, like that since they started using tools in caves. So, you know, like it, it's funny, there's this, this mental, there's this bigger mental block that I believe exists in traditional financial services, which is always going to be, even if they're educated, an impediment to them leveraging these new tools. Uh, and it's it's partly ignorance, but it's partly the sort of preconceived views of the world. It's partly just because they're not trained to think that way. Now, you make a good point. Like there, there are people who are trained to think that way. But even they got caught out in in trying to assess how this how this set of tools would would allow things to happen. Why? Because when they really looked into it, they realized that they like the wall garden kind of approach. Yeah. It's nice to be Facebook. It's nice to be Apple. It's nice to have like n- to not open these things out. And and I think the theme we're getting to now is has to be trying to help people look across across to the other side of these wall gardens that they're in. So if I'm in front services, I need to really understand what this term Web 2 and Web 3 means. Very few people will be able to have a coherent discussion about that in a financial services player. But it, it, but then it goes even further than that. And this is where we get into, you know, TradFi, CFi, DeFi, all these different ways of describing factions. Uh, like, I remember at one point it was public versus private. And then at the one point before that, it was, it was who's got the best private one. And it was R3 versus IBM Hyperledger. And, other, and it, you know, these things get interminably boring eventually because no one's really talking about the real thing you should be talking about. It's like, what are we going to build that's better than what we had before? Um, and, and that, I, I will say that is something that we really spend a lot of time talking to people about. Like in, in, in our investment thesis, which is really about the fourth industrial revolution, the confluence of new technologies, the, the inevitability of, of just a faster, better, cheaper system. How do we enable that? in the part of it that we understand, which is financial services, right? That's our basically our core thesis. If we're talking to someone about an investment, it, it's sort of a three-step process. Step one, 
the people, step two, the commercial objectives of that particular entity and steps and maybe how it fits with the rest of our portfolio. And then step three is the terms, the deal structure, right? But in that first bucket, you have to be able to have a coherent conversation about exactly what we're talking about. If we don't, if we don't meet philosophically on where this is going to go, what we know and what we don't, how we're supposed to challenge the way we think, then not going to move forward to the next phase. Not can't invest in you because to us that the that what's going to unlock the promise is a bunch of people thinking beyond and thinking across and trying to connect things and bust down those those walled gardens and, and create that huge amount of value. So I, I, I you cracking point you made. Hey everyone, hope you are enjoying the interview with Tim. I just wanted to take a quick second to plug something that we mentioned at the top of this interview, which is DAS London. That is our large institutional conference that we have over in London. That is March 18th through the 20th, where we are gathering 1,200 of the world's largest asset managers, financial institutions, and crypto companies. So if you're enjoying this conversation that we're having with Tim, kind of about the intersection of all things uh, crypto and Tradify and what that translates to in terms of opportunities, then I would recommend this conference for you. So again, uh, folks who are going to be there include BlackRock, JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Standard Chartered, Golden Tree, DRW, Point72, Agli Ventures, More Capital. We have folks from uh, who are members of Parliament that are coming, House of Lords are coming. So really good mix of kind of policy, financial services, and investing. And again, because there's such a good listener of On The Margin, there is code MARGIN20. You're going to get 20% off. Um, so again, that is uh, MARGIN20 for 20% off, March 18th through the 20th. Hope to see you there in London. Cheers. That particular moment in time, you know, you sit at a very interesting intersection of kind of the the allocator uh, side of things on the, the sort of family office that... Um, the, the family that funds you guys, but also the, the manager side of things. And uh, obviously, you know, we're talking, this is December uh, 11th that we're talking. It's, uh, you know, prices are, are up um, in crypto. The whole market cap is almost up 100% on the year. Bitcoin has done very well. And you're starting to see signs of life, um, particularly in like the Solana ecosystem. And I, I guess my question is, how much is that increase in prices? Is that you know, are people on the more TradFi side of things, are they paying attention, excited about this at this particular moment in time? Is this still not on their radar? I mean, walk us through where we are in terms of institutional interest at the current, at the current moment. Well, the, the one thing, and this is, you know, the one thing that you, you learn because of the, the upside down nature of how this asset class was created. And, and what I mean is normally these asset classes have to begin with more of an institutional framework and then they become more retail as they get more and more access. Whereas this one started as a retail movement and now everyone's sort of backing into it from an institutional perspective. So that does change a bit. That that also really makes financial services super uneasy. They're like, ah, oh, but the, 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 we, we didn't get to drive this one. So therefore I'm going to naturally distrust it. And also, you know, many financial services players don't understand retail. They don't understand. So, and they don't understand 2023 retail which is an entirely different animal than it was 20 years ago, right? Because this 2023 retail of hundreds of millions of people, I guess the last the last number I saw was that we're really you know, 400, 500 million people own crypto in the world, which is a staggering number, is that they're all connected via these social networks and talking and moving themselves in ways that just never happened. And that also is just not, it's just not something that financial services is used to. But the one thing we've learned from that retail audience, which basically is a truism, whether you're retail or you're institutional, is that crypto is of an incredibly reflexive asset class. 
as the price goes down, people lose interest. As the price <laughs> goes up, people gain interest. It's absolutely astounding. It like it shouldn't be so fundamentally like like basic uh, an idea. It should. It it's it, it, in a way it doesn't really make sense that it would be that way. Like surely everybody's smarter than that, <laughs> but actually we're not. We we just are not. And I am just like everybody else. I get more excited. You know, and 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 actually, the world at large is generally terrible traders. Well, that's just generally true. Like trading is a very difficult discipline. There's a reason why I never became a trader because I do not have the skills. I, I I'm not that guy. I'm way too emotional. I'd hold on to my gains too long. I'd cut my losses. Probably I'd hold on to my my losses way too long. And you know, like it just it's it's all very very difficult and emotional for just most people to become good traders. This is, I think not difficult to to sort of to to reprove that. So we do have this super basic primal prices going up. I'm getting more interested in it. And I and I guess what I'd say about this moment and this price action is it is playing out exactly as we talked about how it would play out with the macro situation evolving uh, and what we thought would happen as a result. And the therefore the then interest from the institutional players. Like I remember talking about this a year ago, a year and a half ago, two years ago at Galaxy and, and in the industry. Like there's an inevitable people getting off the sidelines, liquidity gets dried, drained out, nobody's getting involved. Um, and then suddenly we start to see the green shoots of a, of inflation being under control, the green shoots of a of a of a of a of a rate reduction story. Um, you know, and all the other geopolitical stuff that's going on. Like you put it all together and it starts to feel a little bit like we're on the right track. And the first asset to go was always going to be crypto. It was always going to be the one thing. And and it's played out like a dream. It's played out exactly like that. And it's no more complicated than that. Like nobody needs to overthink this one. That was bound to happen. This is a high beta asset. It's a high volatility, high volatility asset. Therefore, it will go down more on the downside and up more on the upside. There's plenty of academic theory and, and empirical theory to support that, regardless of the asset class. So the good news is, is it's kind of playing out as we'd expected. Now, the corollary, though, and this is the part that we see, and I think we have a we have a kind of a window into in our seat, because we do have, you know, asset management assets. Wealth management assets, banking assets, payment rail assets, trading assets. We have a bit. We have we we invest in in people who do investing, right? Like so, it's kind of all of the above. The things that you'd want to see happen now are all happening. So, what would that be? In no particular order, be like, right? Well, the pick. There's a there's a slowly pick up in the traditional hedge fund community getting involved in Bitcoin in particular as a macro asset class. So that means. Yes, no wonder BlackRock really wants to get an ETF out there because that will be used as a macro hedging asset. That will be used in, in significant volume as a macro trading asset for the traditional community. We're starting to see the crypto natives who survived get more interest from allocators. Right? Yep. All the big guys that I've talked to in the last few weeks, and we're all saying the same thing. Right? Like the interest is picking up. You're getting the big traditional players with the big wealth management assets. And by the way, this is one of the areas that I think people just haven't really cottoned onto. Like there's trillions and trillions of wealth being managed by UBS, Morgan Stanley, 
Bank of America, you know, uh, insert the, the top 10. Like, that is an enormous amount of client money that if 1% of that wanted to get into this space, it's going to move the needle by like a lot, right? That's happening. Mm-hmm. I, 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 that's such a critical point. And, and maybe we, we could get into something that you and I were talking a little bit about, um, you know, before we get into the show. Actually, what one, just to, um, comment on your, your point that the reflexivity of crypto, when price is down, people don't want it. When price goes people, price, prices go up, people want it. I've found that just so, so viscerally experienced that, um, uh, so many times. It's just so funny. And I've also been the person who's, I'm also a person like that happens to me. As well, and uh, and uh, you know, I do think it's not necessarily a crypto native thing. Like this is the reason why the magazine cover indicator works, right? Like bonds are down sixty percent, and this is why investing is hard because at the bottom, no one's telling you, "Hey, it's probably the bottom, and you should buy." People are telling you it's going to zero, and they're screaming it at you. Um, and it's the same thing at the top. Oh, it's been going up forever. It's gonna, and crypto just uh, you know, ten x is that because it it moves up and down so fast. But also, I think the reason is is most people when they buy crypto, they haven't fully bought in yet. They just see it going up a lot. They just think other people are getting rich and they kind of close their eyes and like push the button um, and they never really buy in. And people that stick around for multiple cycles end up gaining the conviction to like invest in it and make it a part of their their business or their life or whatever. But I, I want to talk to you about this, the implications of the ETF, because I feel so we're, you know, again, recording this on the 11th. We are less than, I believe, 30 days out for the January period of time where the iShares ETF, um, you know, would be approved. Um, and yeah, I would just love to, that feels like just such a critical catalyst. I believe the, the Winklevoss brothers, uh, Tyler and Cameron, they first filed for Bitcoin ETF back in, might be 2013. I think we might be a full decade out. Uh, obviously, you know, we've been waiting for this for a long time as an industry. It's not guaranteed that this is going to pass. I think the general expectation at this point is that it will pass. Um, and there's been a lot of talk about, is this a buy the rumor, sell the news? If it does end up getting passed, what is the risk of it not getting passed? I mean, Tim, can you just kind of walk us through, I mean, how you're thinking about the ETF and, and maybe more importantly, you know, what comes after the ETF if it gets approved? If you really think about it, you, you do have to ask yourself the question, why is everyone so singularly obsessed with this one thing in one jurisdiction on one subset? That like, uh, and, and, and it's worth thinking about because it actually, it turns out the answer is very different depending on who you are and how, and how you operate in the space. Sure. The one thing we can all kind of recognize is that that therefore means the US government, one way or another, has made a pretty big step and a pretty big statement that it's more comfortable with the asset class. And sure, you you, you cannot deny how important that is. But there is a practical reality of kind of what happens next and why that's important. And I do think it is it, like the whole thing is about what's going to bring the incremental net new money into the space. That incremental net new money is primarily going to come from large wealth management networks, which hitherto have generally been very reluctant to get involved. If I'm a client of UBS Wealth Management, which I think might be the biggest now, or, or, or it's them and Morgan Stanley between, I can't remember which, which way around it is. Either way, you know, you're talking about trillions that they manage. This isn't a small amount of money. They are basically, they've pretty much been stonewalling their clients for the last few years. And the funny thing is, those are the clients that tend to be the most switched on. They're the ones that will get the news that this is a new asset class and will be hunting for this because they've 
got an aptitude for establishing where there are opportunities in the space. And they've been stonewalled for years, year after year. Sorry, can't do that here. And they've been forced to go and do it if they really wanted to somewhere else. And sometimes that's a good place to go and sometimes it's a less good place to go. But that's the, that's the, the reality. That one element alone, and I could extend it to sovereign wealth money, which is another huge kind of a, a, amount of influential capital that hitherto has generally not been engaging in some significant ways. Now, you create regulated routes which are consistent with the way they do what they do now to get those exposures and more importantly, different types of exposures on that. And watch how quickly you're going to see the, 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 the wealth management networks, the, the, uh, the, the, that other wall of institutional money, um, the, the sovereign wealth, but also just generally the broader sort of institutional asset management beyond wealth management minds, you know, the, the, that, that money, that's a lot. That's, that's the next few trillion of investment that could come into this over the next few years. Therefore, that's why BTC ETF in the US is so very important. Are we really excited about the, 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 the influx of capital into that ETF with the best will in the world? It can only get so big, Like That isn't it. That isn't the thing that's going to do it. It's, it's the next thing, right? Which is right. Well, we've got that now. Other jurisdictions will take note. That starts to open up more broadly. Secondly, the ETFs start to get more interesting and more complicated and more nuanced. We've already seen this play out in Switzerland and Germany and those are jurisdictions that have a pretty open uh, you know, view and they've got ETPs, if not classic ETFs. You start to see with single name, you get into multiple name, then you get dynamic ones. That brings in more institutional money. The next thing that happens is structured products. Like I, I, this is something I feel particularly strongly about because the, the, the mechanism that most traditional wealth management players will give their customers the ability to play a market is through structured products. It's through these, these, these payoff functions that are in, that are, that are put into bankable securities that you can buy. And I put it in my brokerage account and it pays off. And I, that's a, that is a, multi-trillion dollar a year market today that really has not in any way, shape or form been in, but like hit crypto. There's a, there are bit players around the world that will offer that, but they are not the big wealth management networks. So if we get the ETF, we then kind of get a, a, the next step to more complicated ETFs. That always leads from passive to more active products. Then you've got your two in 20 hedge fund products. Then you've got your, your, your structured products. Now we're starting to see where all of that money could go. And, it, and it's all, by the way, and this is the, this is the, sometimes the really, the really tricky tautology that we all end up in. And, and, and I'll put it all under the, under the, the sort of banner of convergence is like, we're going to need the traditional system and we're going to need the new system. And they're going to have to figure out how to meld into the brand new system. Like there is no world in which TradFi exists as it exists and there's an alternative second system over here. There is a world in which that will converge to create a new system and it will be better. It will undoubtedly be better than the one we had before. But when we get to that point and people 
stop thinking about, well, I'm going to be really defensive and say everything needs to be centralized. Well, that's not, that's not going to work. Same over here in traditional finance. Well, none of that DeFi stuff's ever going to work. Well, in which case you're a dinosaur and you're going out of business. The people who really get it right will take the best of both worlds and sort of allow for this to evolve. Uh, and ultimately, if you give these big institutional pools of capital the ability to go get in and, and while this while the price action will continue to do what it's doing, that's going to be the transformative element. The, the retail did its job years ago and over the last few years. Now we need the institutional machine to kick in. And Bitcoin ETF is, is really the big sort of starting gun for that. One thing I've been like, I've been beating the drum on this RIA thing forever. You know, trillions of dollars worth of wealth in the US alone are in RIAs. There is a very structural reason why they can't recommend Bitcoin because they have uh, partnerships with the, the big brokerages, the, you know, the Charles Schwab's and the E-Trades of the world. And like, if I don't have my assets on the platform, I'm not getting my AUM, you know, 80 bips or whatever uh, RIA is charged these days. And instead, now that I have a Bitcoin ETF, I can actually recommend uh, that you buy Bitcoin and I'm getting comped on it. And there's just a million little things like this that actually end up, you know, that are big in terms of flows, but it's really big in terms of narrative as well. Um, you can see that the headlines and the stories start to write themselves. And yeah, I feel like that's also kind of a critical point uh, in thinking through how this is, what the reaction to all of this is, is going to be. Well, there's an, and there is another point. I agree with that. Um, and your RIA point is right bang on on my structured products point because you, 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 know, you, you open up those channels and then all of the apparatus that already exists can be wrapped around these assets. And, and now the purist is probably going to get upset that they aren't tokenized yet and, the, and the, you know, the rails are still the old ones. And, and yeah, look, I, I'm also genuinely sympathetic to that because I want to see that change. But at the end of the day, I think that's the order of business. It's like make, wrap, the, wrap it in the traditional kind of world and then disrupt that by offering the underlying blockchain technology as a new mechanism for all the rails. And that's a lot of work is being done on that, like, you know, by traditional players. But the, but there is the other, the next corollary of that, of, of giving access with these sort of tried and tested routes to these payoffs and these assets is the lifeblood of institutional capital markets, which is the movement of collateral, lending and borrowing, like that very quickly becomes something that, that, that also drags more players in. If I can own an ETF on Bitcoin and I can use that in a traditional way as, as collateral to, to, to borrow, or, I, can, or I, I get into the repo markets or I get into the prime services markets where, I, where I'm allowing head funds to get leverage, the, the more you open up those routes in the plumbing of institutional capital markets, and this is an area that I think probably is even more specialized than ETFs and, stru and structured products and all that, that, that we can all kind of see intuitively. You know, I wouldn't claim to know the, the plumbing of institutional capital markets. It's quite a complicated business. It's multi-jurisdictional. Uh, it, 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 it involves central banks in some ways sometimes as well. But that is what, that is what happens next, right? And that's also, I think, really understood by the big institutional players. Um, so when, again, when we are looking at investment opportunities at the moment, we want to find those businesses that are thinking along the lines of two, three years from now, when institutional like capital markets and, and the sort of the lifeblood of capital distribution, lending and borrowing liquidity starts to involve crypto more, more in, in a more meaningful way, 
I'm going to be there to be able to do things with it. We love those businesses because now, now we're talking about a transformation. What's going on, everybody? Thank you for listening to On The Margin. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a very special offer that we have coming out of BlockWorks Research. Now, many of you will probably be familiar with our platform, but BlockWorks Research is the most blue-chip spot to get research, data, governance, models, and a whole lot more about the leading DeFi protocols in the space. I've leaned on our analysts time and time again to explain complicated concepts going on in DeFi to me like I'm five years old. They can do the same for you. If you invest in DeFi or are just interested in it, it is an absolute no-brainer. As a listener of On The Margin, and to say thank you all for listening to the show, you can use Margin 10 for a 10% discount, and that gives you access to everything, which would be weekly in-depth reports, live data, all of that good stuff. So again, that's code Margin10 for a 10% discount. Link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Thank you later. Yeah. I couldn't couldn't agree more. And maybe that's a good place to sort of start to wind down or end is, you know, from your seat as an investor, I mean, can you give us a sense of like, what are some of the trends or sectors or uh, businesses or whatever? Like what's kind of exciting you and drawing your focus these days? Well, you know what, in a way, what we talked about, uh, about the sort of inevitability of the price action and, and that we would see the behaviors that we're seeing by all the, all the right factions, which I find very, very calming. You know, I'm like, right. Good. This is playing out. No surprises here. The same is true, I think, of the builders as we look at projects. Like what we expected to happen was that a lot of terrible stuff would be flushed out. Um, those unfortunate. Hey, it's the way of the jungle. You know, if you if you weren't able to raise capital and you didn't have a good business model, you're out of. Tr- you know, you might have been a great team, but you weren't great enough. And that's just the way it goes. I think what I'm what I gets me excited is now the stuff that's left that's made it through, it, it starts to look quite promising. And and the other trend I'll say is with more and more pe- more and more crossover, people have come out of TradFi and then gone running back into TradFi. <laughs> people have gone, you know, come seen the light in DeFi and sort of started to think about crossing over. And and that crossover element is back to the wall gardens comment. I'm starting to see a lot more crossover. You it's you're able you're actually able to find People with experience of both sides, if they've genuinely been for multiple years in one and multiple years in the other, and they've thought about how they mesh together, to me, that is that is a new talent base, which didn't necessarily exist when we started the last bull run in 2017, that, that there weren't enough people who'd done both. Now we have more believers. Now we have a bigger talent pool. At the end of the day, if we don't have the people, we're not going to be able to build anything at all. So let's let's sort of really rest on our laurels on that one. Like if we've got people, we're good to go. I find that to be really appealing. I find that the conversation with the institutional players is as easy as it's ever been to engage in a genuine, constructive conversation about where this is going. Um, I find that the institutional adoption cycle didn't really suffer in a, in a funny way. Like if you were committed as a big financial institution going into this last bear market, you probably didn't stop being committed. Like you, 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 you knew enough about what was going on that you had to keep building, and therefore you come out. and And what we're seeing this lot, like you know, look at Laser Digital from Nomura, look at Standard Chartered and what they're doing, look at uh, JP Morgan and Goldman's and what they're doing, just as, just as examples and BlackRock, of course, like they're all in it. They're all doing stuff. They're all committed. And to me, that's another great sign. There is new funds getting set up, which I think look really interesting. Um, 
So it's that sort of, to me, this is the, this is the, the lifeblood of, of a functioning growth market that we needed to see, and we are seeing it all. And I will say, um, in the short period of time that I've been in this role, right, I am not challenged and we are not challenged about where to put money. It's actually, it's actually the other, the other way around. It's like, well, how do we, how do we narrow it down to the things we want to bet on? There's loads of quality I'm seeing out there. And that has to be the most encouraging element of all. Yeah, to just 100% want to underscore that. I think the, the line about talent is especially important. You know, it's something that I think, especially once you get to a certain size of business, you know, you start looking for talent, uh, talented operators, you know, a sales lead, marketing lead, whatever it is. And oftentimes it's difficult to find someone who's a domain expert, but also understands this industry and sort of the unique quirks about it as well. Um, so I, I remain, and I remain, I'm totally with you. I remain extremely optimistic going into this next year. Um, and like the, all those, uh, you know, we should, we should bookmark this and actually go back as a fun thought exercise because we'll be together in, in March and actually Standard Charter and BlackRock, JPM, Morgan, all those guys are going to be there too. So, you know, I, I'm just, I am very curious. I think even now you and I talking, you know, you're saying there's a bunch of opportunities and it feels like it's, you know, quickening up. I thought even by March, it's going to be, it's going to feel like a different, completely different moment in time as well. Um, exactly. Uh, Tim, this has been uh, just a ton of fun. Uh, if folks want to find out more about you, um, you know, follow the work that you're doing at, you know, Deus Ex Capital or on Twitter, or whatever it is, like, what's the best, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, you know what? I, I somehow, um, somehow the, the, the Twitterati has, has sort of passed me by. I don't know if it's, I don't know why. Um, I'm not, I'm not against social media, but so I tend to, my, I tend to live my life on LinkedIn actually. Um, and these days, there's, I think there's somewhere upwards of 18 or 19,000 people on there who follow me. So look, that's, that's where I'm going to be really putting most of the things in terms of commentary on what we're doing and, and what we believe. Um, I am actually, uh, I'm going to start writing a little bit more um, and, and start actually putting some of these joined up thoughts out there. Um, and some of that, hopefully with, uh, with your colleagues, as you might know. And then, um, so, and, and look, I, I, I did, <laughs> I did do a, a pretty decent job of being on the conference circuit um, this quarter. I'm probably uh, with, with one or two exceptions, including of course um, that your event in London going to keep a lower profile with those actually and focus on the building and the doing. Um, but, but, you know, those, those, if you see me popping up at an event, that's probably a good place to come and and kind of get, get the, uh, get the ideas. So yeah, follow me on LinkedIn, please. That that's, that's the best way. Yeah. And uh, you're, you're, you're very humble. So I'll say this for you as well. Tim is uh, you know, an incredibly sharp guy as you've just heard this last hour and has a very unique sort of insight at the, the intersection of um, crypto and macro. So if you're in London or, or planning on doing any traveling, uh, come and come and meet him in person. So um, Tim, appreciate you and the time as always. Uh, this was a lot of fun. We'll, uh, we'll have to do it again sometime soon. Really appreciate it as well. Always a pleasure. We should do it again and, and we'll, we'll look back on this one and see whether we were horrifically right or horrifically <laughs> wrong. <laughs> yeah, all right. 50-50. All right. Talk to you soon. Rock and roll. All right, everyone. Thank you for tuning into that great interview with Michael. Just as a reminder, I know I've mentioned it a couple times throughout this interview, but Michael is going to be with us in person at our Institutional Digital Assets Conference, DAS London. That is March 18th through the 20th in London. 
Michael is going to be joining us talking about liquidity, inflation, monetary hedges like gold and Bitcoin. There are going to be many of uh, the on the margin interviewees from the past and a lot of the big institutions, the Black Rocks, the Goldmans, uh, et cetera. So if you're into digital assets and if you're into the type of content that we just covered today, I highly recommend that you go. There is a code margin20, which is going to get you a 20% discount on tickets because you're such a loyal listener and I appreciate you and just genuinely want to see you in person in London. So thanks very much. Hopefully see you in London, March 18th through the 20th. And again, use code margin20. 